Okay, uh, we're going to pick back up where we left off. We were in Proposition 2, that a plurality of worlds doth not contradict any principle of reason or faith. So this appears to be uh, faith-based reasoning in this section. Uh, Remember, we are reading The Discovery of a World in the Moon, written by John Wilkins in 1638, uh, shortly, well, not shortly, but 30 years after Galileo put his eye toward the stars. And this guy, Mr. Wilkins, wrote a treatise uh, talking about the possible habitability of the moon. And it is just crazy to read about um, from such from a time so long ago. And um, this old English I'm reading is hilarious and also fun to read. Uh, Okay, so we were talking about, um, how did he put it? The first mover. Um, The Big Bang was not yet (laughs) invented or thought of back then, but I think that is kind of on the same topic. Uh, who got everything started. And the last thing we read was another argument he had from his master Plato that there is but one world because there is but one first mover, God. And you know what I'm noticing? On the right-hand side of this document, there are, like, resources uh, leading me to other, like, references uh some of them are biblical some of them are not so i have no idea what to make of them anyway we might use them uh we'll see so let's see here we go but here i may deny the consequence since a plurality of worlds doth not take away the unity of the first mover uh ensues latin i'm not sure if we get a translation or not the next thing it says is In parentheses, saith a countryman of ours. (laughs) Okay. As the substantial form, so the efficient cause hath only an appearing multiplicity from its particular matter. You may see this point more largely handled and these arguments more fully answered by Plutarch in his book, Why Oracles Are Silent and Jacob Carpentarius in his comment on Alcyonus. Why oracles are silent. Ooh, sounds like sacrilegious. Okay, but our opposites are interpreters themselves. Who too often do jurar in verba magistri? Man, I wish I knew Latin. We'll grant that there is not any strength in these consequences, and certainly their such weak arguments could not convince that wise philosopher who is who in his other opinions was wont to be swayed by the strength and power of reason. Wherefore, I should rather think that he had some by-respect, which made him first assent to this opinion, and afterwards strive to prove it. Perhaps it was because he feared to displease his scholar Alexander— of whom tis related that he wept to hear a disputation of another world, since he had not then attained the monarchy of this. His restless wide heart would have esteemed 
this globe of earth not big enough for him if he had been another, if there had been another, which made the the satirist say of him, what on earth? Uh, no idea. Estaut in afflix augusto limite mundi. That he did vex himself and sweat in his desires as being pen, penned up in a narrow room when he was confined but to one world. But he thought to see himself next to the gods. But now, when he had done his best, he must be content with some equal or perhaps perhaps superior kings. Dude, whatever. I don't know how this is proving anything. It may be that Aristotle was moved to this opinion, that he might thereby take from Alexander the occasion of this fear and discontent, or else perhaps Aristotle himself was a loth to hold the possibility of a world which he could not discover, as Alexander was to hear of one which he could not conquer. Ah, oh, we're talking about Alexander the Great. He was loth to hear of a of a world which he could not conquer. And so therefore Aristotle may have been loth to hear of a world which he could not discover. Okay. Uh, Tis likely that some such, by respect, moved him to this opinion, since the arguments he urges for in it are confessed by his zealous followers and commentators to be very slight and frivolous, and they themselves grant that I am now to prove that there is not any evidence in the light of natural reason which can sufficiently manifest that there is but one world." Maybe that was like a belief back then that there was just one world and there couldn't be any more. Seems reasonable. But however, some may object, would it not be inconvenient and dangerous to admit of such opinions that do destroy those principles of Aristotle, which all the world hath so long followed? I do know that Aristotle, yeah, I mean, obviously people loved this guy, ate his words up and like for centuries after after he died, uh, basically up until the scientific uh, revolution, as I understand it. So, okay, we're trying to break out of this Aristotle-taught uh, world. Okay, back into it. The, this question is much controverted by the Romish divines. Campanella hath writ a treatise in, in defense of it in whom you may see many things worth the reading and notice. And we have a little side note over here. It says, Apologia pro Galileo. Interesting. Might be a fun one to read. Uh, to, To it I answer that this proposition in philosophy doth not bring any inconvenience to the rest, since tis not Aristotle, but truth that should rule that should be the rule of our opinions. Ooh, I like that. And if they be not both found together, we may say to him, as he said to his master Plato, some Greek thing, but I think this is the translation. Though Plato were his friend, yet he would rather adhere to truth than him. Let me just read that again. Though Plato were his friend, yet he would rather adhere to truth than him. I love it. Okay, moving on. 
I must needs grant that we are all much beholden to the industry. Hey, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about religion. I guess it's not so much religion and it's philosophy too. Anyway, I must needs grant that we are all much beholden to the industry of the ancient philosophers and more especially to Aristotle for the greater part of our learning, but for the greater part of our learning, but yet tis not ingratitude to speak against him when he opposeth truth. Very true, my friend. For then many of the fathers would be very guilty, especially Justin, who hath writ a treatise purposefully, purposely against him. But suppose this opinion were false, yet tis not against the faith, and so it may serve for the better confirmation of that which is true, the sparks of error being forced out by opposition, as the sparks of fire by the striking of the flint and steel. Okay. But suppose, too, that it were heretical and against the faith, yet may it Yet it may be admitted with the same privilege as Aristotle, from whom many more dangerous opinions have proceeded, as that the world is eternal, that God cannot have, uh, as, as that the world is eternal, that God cannot have while to look after these inferior things, and after death there is no reward or punishment, and such like blasphemes, which strike directly at the fundamentals of our religion. Is that, are those things Aristotle taught? But, but suppose too that it were heretical and against the faith, yet may it be admitted with the same privilege as Aristotle, from whom many more dangerous opinions have proceeded. Yeah. Okay. So he must have taught those things which are against Christian faith because Christianity had not been um, created yet. One moment. Dry mouth. Okay. Okay. Fundamentals of our religion. So that, so that, so that it is justly to be wondered by some should be so superstitious in these days, D-A-I-E-S, awesome, as to stick closer unto him than unto scripture, as if his philosophy were the only foundation of all divine truths. Okay, so it sounds like he's taking the side of uh, his religion, which um, certainly is Christianity, but... 1538 that's is that before or after the um reformation pretty sure that's after like long after hundreds of years after so so is he um church of england maybe anyway where are we at um yeah okay so upon these grounds both saint Uincentius and Senafinus de Firmo, as I have seen them quoted in parentheses, think that Aristotle was the veal of God's wrath, which was powered out upon the waters of wisdom by the third angel. Wow. But for my part, I think he, the world is much beholden to Aristotle for all its sciences. But yet, Twere a shame for these later ages to rest ourselves merely upon the labors of our forefathers, as if they had informed us of all things to be known, and when we are set upon their shoulders, not to see further than they themselves did. That's a good image. Twere a superstitious, a lazy opinion to think Aristotle 
works. Uh, okay, so hold on. <laughs> Twer a this is a quote apparently, but I'm not sure by who, but it's quoted. Twer a superstitious a, a lazy opinion to think Aristotle's works the bounds and limits of all humane invention. I'm pretty sure that's just human, but there's an e on the end beyond which there could be no possibility of reaching. Certainly, there are yet many things left to discovery, and it cannot be any inconvenience for us to maintain a new truth or rectify an ancient error. Okay, so we're learning new things here. We get it. Let's move on. But the position, but the position, say some, is directly against Scripture. For, okay, here we go. Four bullet points this time. Okay, number one, Moses tells us but of one world and his history capital h of the creation had been very imperfect if god had made another Mm, okay so moses maybe wasn't wrong but wasn't telling the whole truth if there was another world other than earth uh number two saint john speaking of god's works says he made the world in the singular number and therefore, there is but one. <laughs> okay. Tis the argument of Aquinas, uh, and he thinks that none will oppose it, but such who with Democritus esteem some blind chance and not any wise providence to be the framer of all things. Okay, so this one is, John says he made the world, not worlds. Okay, number three. The opinion of more worlds has in ancient time been accounted a heresy, and Baronius affirms that for this very reason, Virgilius was cast out of his bishopric and excommunicated from the church. Okay, so bullet point three is just someone was excommunicated. I think I've heard of Baronius. Wasn't he like um, torched or something? Caesar Baronio was an Italian cardinal and ecclesiastical historian of the Roman Catholic Church. His best-known works are the Annals of Ecclesiastes, which appeared in 12... I don't know. He died in 1607. Okay, I'm doing it. We're going to see more in Wikipedia. Uh, died, was buried in the same church. I don't know. It doesn't say anything about... doesn't really say anything about him being a martyr. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. Uh, back to the story. Uh, let's see. That was number three. Okay. So number four, uh, a fourth argument there is urged by Aquinas. If there be more worlds than one, then they must either be of the same or of a diverse nature, but they are not the same kind. For this were needless and would argue an improvidence since one would have no more perfection than the other. <laughs> it's like, if if they're the two worlds and they're the same, it's pointless, is what he's saying. Not of diverse kinds, for then one of them could not be called the world or universe, since it did not contain universal perfection. I have cited this argument because it is so much stood upon by Julius Caesar La Gala, one that has purposely writ a treatise against this opinion, which I now deliver. But the dilemma is so blunt that it cannot cut on either side, and the consequence is so weak that I dare trust them without an answer. 
and parenthesis, by the way, close parenthesis, you may see this author in that place where he endeavors to prove a necessity of one world, doth leave the chief matter in hand and take much needless pains to dispute against Democritus, who taught that the world was made by the casual concourse of atoms in a great vacuum. It should, that's interesting, atoms um, before uh, or at the very beginning of the scientific revolution. I know that uh, um, the word atoms existed, though, you know, obviously they didn't have an understanding of like um, subatomic particles and, you know, really anything. Uh, Okay. It should seem that either his cause or his skill was weak, or else he would have ventured upon a stronger adversary. These arguments which I have set down are the chiefest which I have met with against this subject, and yet the best of these hath not force enough to endanger the truth that I have delivered. Okay, so there's four points he's making. Unlike before, I don't see four more bullet points which gives examples of those. So I think we're safe. I think we're done with those. <laughs> Let's see what else he has to say. Oh, I could be wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he says, Unto the two first it may be answered that the negative authority of Scripture is not prevalent in those things which are not the fundamentals of religion. But if you'll reply though it do not necessarily conclude, yet tis probable if there had been another world, we should have had some notice of it in Scripture. Okay, so if there was another world, we I mean, it should have said something in, in the Bible about it, is what the argument is. His answer. I answer, tis as probable that the Scripture should have informed us of the planets, they being very remarkable parts of the creation, And yet neither Moses nor Job nor the Psalms, the places most frequent in astronomical observations, mention any of them but the sun and moon. And moreover, you must know that tis besides the scope of the Holy Ghost either in the New Testament or in the Old to reveal anything unto us concerning the secrets of philosophy. Tis not his intent in the New Testament, since we cannot conceive how it might any way belong either to the historical, exegetical, or prophetical parts of it, nor is it his intent in the Old Testament, as is well observed by our countryman, Master Wright. Something in Latin, and then here's the translation. Tis not the endeavor of Moses or the prophets to discover any mathematical or philosophical subtleties, but rather to accommodate themselves to vulgar capacities and ordinary speech as nurses are wont to use their infants. So is that his argument of why uh, this other world is not mentioned? Wait a minute, though. I mean, it's weird because he really is using the word world as like a habitable planet because he straight up says... Uh, the Psalms, the places most frequent in astronomical observations, mention any of them but the sun and moon, S-U-N-N-E and M-O-O-N-E. Um, so, obviously, Psalms does mention the sun and the moon, but it doesn't mention that the moon is inhabited, is what he's saying. 
but he's not really saying that, but that's what he's saying. Uh, okay, so let's continue. So Moses apparently didn't need to uh, put forth any mathematical or philosophical uh, subtleties because he's really just trying to talk to us like a nurse does to infants. Okay, true indeed, Moses is there to handle the history of the creation, but tis observed that he does not anywhere meddle with such matters as were very hard to be apprehended. Oh, okay, he's just giving us milk. For being to inform the common people as well as others. He does it after a very a vulgar way. I guess vulgar in this context just means simple. As it is commonly noted, declaring the original chiefly Declaring the original chiefly of those things which were obvious to the sense and being silent of other things, which then could not well be apprehended. And therefore, Aquinas observes that Moses writes nothing of the air, because being invisible, the people knew not whether there were any such body or no. Interesting. He doesn't write of air. So why should he write of a habited world, inhabited world? Okay, some solid arguments. <laughs> um, and for this very reason, St. Austin also thinks that there is nothing expressed concerning the creation of angels, which notwithstanding are as remarkable parts of the creatures and as fit to be known as another world. And therefore, the Holy Ghost, too, uses such vulgar expressions, which set things forth rather as they appear than as they are, as when he calls the moon one of the greater lights, whereas tis the least but one that we can see in the whole heavens. So afterwards, speaking of the great rain which drowned the world, he says, the widows of heaven, I'm sorry, windows of heaven were opened because it seems to come with that violence as if it were poured out from windows in the firmament. So he's using it. They use analogies in the Bible to make things simpler, but they shouldn't be taken at face value is what he's saying. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, definitely there's analogies used. Okay, so so that the phrases which the Holy Ghost, I guess, you know what? Some people probably don't think that there are analogies used, but I mean, I'm pretty sure there are. <laughs> okay, so the plan, so the phrases which the Holy Ghost uses concerning these things are not to be understood in a literal sense. That's the word I was looking for, literal, literal. But rather as vulgar expressions. And this rule is set down by St. Austin, where speaking concerning that in the psalm, who stretched the earth upon his waters, upon the waters. He notes that when the words of scripture shall seem to contradict common sense or experience, there are they to be there are they to be understood in a qualified sense and not according to the letter and tis observed that for want of this rule some of the ancients have fastened strange absurdities upon the words of the scripture so saint ambrose esteemed it a heresy to think that the sun and stars were not very hot as being against the words of scripture psalm 9 6 where the psalmist says that there is nothing that is hid from the heat of the sun. So others there are that would prove the heavens not to be round out of that place. Psalm 104.2 He stretcheth, he stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain. So Procopius 
also was of opinion that the earth was founded upon the waters. Nay, he made it part of his faith, proving it out of Psalm 24 too. He hath founded the earth upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Clouds. Could be clouds. Starts with an F, but you know, sometimes they use a different letter. <laughs> uh, these are such like absurdities. These and such like absurdities have followed when men look for the grounds of philosophy in the words of Scripture, so that from what hath been said, I may conclude that the silence of Scripture concerning any other world is not sufficient argument to prove that there is none. Thus, for the first two arguments. Well said, my friend. Okay. So sometimes, and that's the, that's the problem, you don't know whether to take the Bible literally or not. Okay. Unto the third, I may answer. Let's see. What was the third, you guys? What was the third? Third was the opinion of more worlds has in ancient time been accounted a heresy. And Vigilius was cast out of his bishopric and excommunicated from church for this. Okay. Uh, let's see. Unto the third, I may answer that this very example is quoted by others to show the ignorance of those primitive times. So wait, I, I wonder if the argument is, well, someone was excommunicated for thinking this and there has never been a wrongly excommunicated member of the church. I wonder if that's the argument. Let's see. Um, that this very example is quoted by others to show the ignorance of those primitive times who did sometimes condemn what they did not understand and have often censured the lawful and undoubted parts of mathematics for heretical because they themselves could not perceive a reason of it and therefore their practice in this particular is no sufficient testimony against us uh okay so they just didn't understand it so I don't know. Are they forgiven or or not? I'm not sure. Okay. But lastly, I answer to all the above named objections that the term world may be taken in a double sense. Oh, here we go. Okay. You can answer this for us. Does world mean, mean inhabited land? Okay. The term world may be taken in a double sense more generally for the whole universe as it implies in it the elementary and ethereal bodies, the stars and the earth. Okay, so world can mean the whole universe, everything in it. Secondly, more particularly for an inferior world consisting of elements. Like a smaller world? In that way, inferior? Meaning like atoms? I don't know. Now, the main drift of all these arguments, wow, that was a saying back then? The main drift? That's weird. Is to confute a plurality of worlds in the first sense. Confute. Like, making arguments against, I guess? Um, the main drift of all these arguments is to confute a plurality of worlds in the first sense. Okay, so so ignore the second sense. It's really the first sense we're talking about. Uh, that the that a world can mean the universe. Oh, okay, so that's the that's the answer. That if if it says God created a world, well, just interpret the word world 
as the universe. Then he, that means he also created the moon and everything else. Okay. Um, and if there were any such, it might perhaps seem strange that Moses or St. John should either not know or not mention it in its creation or not mention its creation. And Virgilius was condemned for this opinion because he held quad sit alias mundus sub terra, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that within our globe of earth, there was another world, another sun and moon. And so he might seem to exclude this from the number of the other creatures. And that within our globe of earth, there was another world, another sun and moon. And so he might seem to exclude this from the number of the other creatures. I don't know. But now there is no such danger in this opinion, which is here delivered, since this word, since this world said to be in the moon, whose creation is particularly expressed. Since this world said to be in the moon, whatever. So that in the first sense, I yield, yelled, Y-E-E-L-D, that there is but one world, which is all the arguments which is all that the arguments do prove, but understand it in the second sense. And so I affirm that there may be more, nor do any of the above named objections prove the contrary. Okay, if you say so. Oh, by the way, it's not contrary, it's contrary, And the O has a little tilde above it. Neither can this opinion derogate from the divine wisdom, as Aquinas thinks, but rather advance it, showing a compendium of providence that could make the same body a world and a moon. A world for habitation and a moon for the use of others and the ornament of the whole frame of nature. (laughs) It's an ornament. For as the members of the body serve not only for the preservation of themselves, but for the use and conveniency of the whole. As the hand protects the head as well as saves itself. So is it so is it in the parts of the universe where each one may serve as well for the conservation of that which is within it as the help of others without. Sure. You guys, we're making it down to the end of Proposition 2. There are two very short paragraphs left in it. Uh, and we will find out what proposition three is all about. I have now in some measure showed that the plurality of worlds does not contradict any principle of reason or place of scripture. And so cleared the first part of that supposition, which is applied in the opinion. It may next be inquired whether it is possible. There may be a globe of elements in that, which we call the ethereal parts of the universe. For if this, as it is according to the common opinion, be privileged from any change or corruption, it will be in vain then to imagine any element there. And if we will have another world, we must then seek out some other place for for its situation. The third proposition, therefore, shall be this. Okay, before I read it, um, I do remember reading a little bit about this. Basically, one of the arguments... um, I, I, I do remember like uh, 
I don't know what it was an argument against, but basically like the universe is incorruptible. Oh, I think what uh, what I remember hearing in reference to was whether the moon um, like had mountains. Because, I, okay, I, I remember Galileo, one of the arguments against him is because Galileo said that there were mountains on the moon. And the argument against it was, no, the moon is like a perfect sphere and it's incorruptible. And blemishes on the moon or something like that would make it corrupted. So I think that's what he's talking about when um, he says, be privileged from any change or corruption. And also, I remember when Galileo looked at Jupiter and saw the plant, the moons moving around Jupiter, that is change. And so people didn't um, like that. Like they thought that was wrong because the universe shouldn't change ever. Okay, proposition three, my friends. Ready? Here we go. That the heavens do not consist of any such pure matter which can privilege them from the like change and corruption as these inferior bodies are liable unto. So maybe small bodies can change, but big ones can't. That the heavens do not consist of any such pure matter which can privilege them from the like change and corruption as these inferior bodies are liable unto. Kind of a weird way of saying it, but we're in the 16th century. Okay, it hath been often questioned amongst the ancient fathers and philosophers what kind of matter that should be of which the heavens are framed, whether or no of any fifth substance distinct from the four elements as Aristotle holds, and with him some of the late schoolmen, whose subtle brains could not be content to attribute to those vast glorious bodies but common materials, and therefore they themselves had rather take pains to prefer them to some extraordinary nature, whereas notwithstanding, all the arguments they could invent were not able to convince the necessity of any such matter, as is confessed by their own side. And we have a reference, a uh, little asterisk there, but I don't know what it's referring to. College Canimb de Coelho, and it gives some numbers and stuff. Uh, probably something Aristotle wrote or something. So, yeah, I think even basically up until this period, um, it was thought that, or um, even after possibly, that it was thought that space wasn't a vacuum, that it was like filled with something. And I think it was called um, ethereal um, matter or whatever. Uh, so I don't know where we were, but anyway, it were much to be desired uh, that these men had not other cases. Oh, uh, that's right. I was going to say, so the four elements, obviously, um, earth, wind, fire, water. So they're saying, did it, it consist of some other, did, you know, space and the things in space consist of some other matter? It were not much to be desired that these men had not in other cases, as well as this, multiplied things without necessity. And as if there had not been enough to be known in the secrets of nature, have spun out new subjects from their own brains to find more work for future ages. <laughs> I shall not mention their arguments since tis already confessed that they are none of them of any necessary consequence. And besides, you may see them set down in any of the, of the books of De Caelo. 
So yeah, so they're just making busybody work, I guess, coming up with new things. Uh, but it is the general consensus of the fathers and the opinion of Lombard that the heavens consist of the same matter with these sublunary body- bodies. St. Ambrose is confident of it, that he esteems the contrary a heresy. True indeed, they differ much among themselves, some thinking them to be made of fire, others of water, but herein they generally agree that they are all framed of some element or other. But for a better confirmation of this, you may see Ludovicus Molina, something, something, with diverse others. The venerable Beatty thought the planets to consist of all four elements, and tis likely that the other parts are of an aqueous substance. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> not aqueous, aerius, an aerius substance, as will be showed afterward. However, I cannot now stand to recite the arguments for either. <laughs> I have only urged these authorities to countervail Aristotle and the schoolmen, and the better to make way for a proof of their corruptibility. Okay. Is he saying, like, I don't have time for this stuff? Uh, The next thing, then, to be inquired after is whether they be of a corruptible nature, not whether they can be destroyed by God, for this scripture puts out, for this scripture puts out of doubt. Oh, and he references on the side, 2 Peter 3.12. Should we look that up? I kind of want to look that up. Let's just look it up. Uh... What's it called? Bible Gateway is always a good one. Of course, we're going to do King James because that's my favorite. Second uh, Peter 3.12. Uh, 2 Peter, and what I say? What was it? 3.12? Okay, easy. Peter's only got three chapters. 3 and 12. As you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in heat. So God can destroy anything he wants. <clears throat> Pretty sure that's what that's saying. Okay, nor okay, so nor whether or no, in a long time they would wear away and grow worse, for from any such fear they have been lately privileged. But whether they are capable of such changes and vicissitudes as this inferior world is liable unto. Okay, wait. Uh, no, let's just move on. Okay. <laughs> the two chief opinions concerning this have both erred in some extremity. The one side going so far from the other that they both they have both gone beyond the right, whilst Aristotle hath opposed the truth, as well as the Stoics. Where the Stoics? I don't know. Some of the ancients have thought that the heavenly bodies have stood in need of nourishment from the elements by which they were continually fed, and so had diverse alterations by reason of their food that is fathered on Heraclitus, followed by that great naturalist Pliny, and in general attributed to all the Stoics. You may see Seneca expressly to this purpose in these words. Latin. Speaking of the earth, he says, From thence it is that nourishment is divided to all the living creatures, the plants and the stars. Hence were sustained so many constellations 
so laborious, so greedy both day and night, as well in their feeding as working. Thus also Lucan says, so like planets are fed? Okay, I'm not sure where we're going with this. He says something in Latin. Unto these Ptolemy also that learned Egyptians seem to agree when he affirms that the body of the moon is moister and cooler than any of the other planets. Ooh, that's interesting. By reason of the earthly vapors that are exalted unto it. Okay. You see these ancients thought the heavens to be so far from this imagined incorruptibility that rather like the weakest bodies they stood in need of some continued uh, but rather like the weakest bodies, they stood in need of some continual nourishment without which they could not subsist. I don't know what earthly vapors he's talking about. I guess mists that are rising? I don't know. But Aristotle and his followers were so far from this that they thought those glorious bodies could not contain within them any such principles as might make them liable to the least change or corruption. And their chief reason was because we could not in so long a space discern any alteration amongst them, but unto this I answer. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Aristotle thought that the heavenly bodies could not change because in their lifetime, they had never seen them change. Here is, oh, you guys, we have another bullet point. Uh, three bullets coming up. Three arguments against this. One, supposing we could not, yet would it not hence follow that there were none? as he himself, in effect, doth confess in another place. For speaking concerning our knowledge of the heavens, he says, "'Tis very imperfect and difficult by reason of the vast distance of those bodies from us, and because the changes which may happen unto it are not either big enough for frequent fall, frequent enough to fall within the apprehension and observation of our senses, no wonder then if he himself be deceived in his assertions concerning these particulars. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. Two, let's just move on to two. Maybe it's better. Though we could not, though we could not by our senses see such alterations, yet our reason might perhaps sufficiently convince us of them. Nor can we well conceive how the sun should reflect against the moon and yet not produce some alteration of heat. Diogenes, the philosopher, was hence persuaded that those scorching heats had burnt the moon into the form of a pumice stone. Okay, so two, I guess he's saying, sure, we can't see it, but we can reason that they change, I guess, right? Okay, number three, I answer that there have been some alterations observed there. Okay, here we go. Uh, Empirical evidence. I'm going to take a drink real quick before this goodie. Okay. Some of some alterations observed there. Witness these comets. Ooh, comets. Okay. Witness those comets which have been seen above the moon. So that though Aristotle's it's got an S at the end of it, I don't know why. Consequence so that though Aristotle consequence were sufficient when he proved that the heavens were not corruptible, because there have not any changes. There have not any changes being observed in it, yet this, by the same reason, must be as prevalent that the heavens are corruptible, because there have been so many alterations observed there. I guess comets. But how do comets change? I mean, just like their tails, maybe? 
I don't see how they would see a change. Oh, oh, because they get fuzzier when they get toward the sun and they start letting off more gas, maybe? I don't know. But none of these together with a farther confirmation of his proposition, I shall have occasion to speak afterwards. In the mean space, I will refer to the reader to that work of Shiner, a late Jesuit, which he titles his Rosa Versina, which where he may see this point concerning the corruptibility of the heavens largely handled and sufficiently confirmed. I don't know about it. those are some weak arguments, I feel like. I was kind of hoping for more. Those are the bullet points. Okay, so here we go. There are some other things on which I might here take an occasion to enlarge myself, but because they are directly handled by many others and do not immediately belong to the chief matter and in hand, I shall therefore refer the reader to the, to their authors and omit any large proof of them myself as defining all possible brevity. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are defining all possible brevity, my friend. Okay, so we got another bullet bullet list. Just, just three. They're kind of long. Okay, here we go. Let's get through them. The first is this. Number one. The first is this, that there are no solid orbs. If there be a habitable world in the moon, which I now affirm, it must follow that her orb is not solid as Aristotle supposed. And if not her, why any of the other? Okay, why can it not be solid? I hope you explain. I rather think that they are all of a fluid, perhaps areous substance, like gaseous, I'm guessing. St. Ambrose and St. Basil did endeavor to prove this out of that place in I say. Not sure where that is, uh, where they are compared to smoke, S-M-O-A-K-E, <laughs> as they are both quoted by Rodiginus, blah, 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 doth likewise from that place confute the solidity and incorruptibility of the heaven and cites with the same, same interpretation the authority of Eustachius of Antioch and St. Austin, I am sure seems to ascend under this opinion, though he does not often in his other works contradict it. The testimony of other fathers to this purpose you may see in Sixus Biblio, whatever. But for your letter, but for your better satisfaction here, and I shall refer you to the above named Shiner in his Rosa Ursina, in whom you may see both authorities and reason, and very largely and distinctly set down for this opinion, for the better confirmation of which he adjoins also some authentical epistles of Fredericus, blah, 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 a noble prince written to Bellarmine, containing diverse reasons to the same purpose you may see. Oh, wow. I'm just going to. Oh, but he mentions Tycho. I was going to say I was going to skip it. Noble prince written to Bellarmine containing diverse reasons for the same purpose. And you may see the same truth set down by Johannes Penna in his preface to Euclid's Optics and Christoph Rothamus, both who thought the firmament to be only air, and though the noble Tycho do dispute against them, yet he himself holds, something in Latin translation, that this opinion comes nearer to the truth than that common one of Aristotle, which hath to no purpose filled the heavens with such real and impervious orbs. 
Uh, Tycho was a um, contemporary of Galileo, I believe. Um, and I believe Kepler um, was like a, um, what do you call it? A, um, assistant? No, there's a different word for it. Apprentice um, of Tycho. Tycho's big thing was, um, and by the way, I think Tycho, was that, am I wrong about this? I believe Tycho was like the last big uh, non-telescope astronomer, which makes sense because Galileo, obviously, I don't know that he can, I think, I think it's believed now that other people invented the telescope, but he was the first one to really look up at the stars. Uh, anyway, yeah, I'm pretty sure Tycho was famous because he um, collected tons and tons of visual data. Uh, he made like tons of star charts. And I believe they were used later by Kepler to um, form his theories of um, orbits and stuff. So anyway, I didn't want to skip something about Tycho. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. So basically he's saying that he thinks they're gas, I guess. But wait, if he thinks they're gas, then they're not habitable, right? Eh, maybe he thinks they're just, uh, they have an atmosphere. Okay, two, there is no element of fire, which must be held with this opinion here delivered. For if we suppose a world in the moon, then it will follow that the sphere of fire either is not where there is. Oh, well, this is a weird sentence. For if we suppose a world in the moon, then it will follow that the sphere of fire either is not there where tis usually placed in the concavity of his orb, or else there is no such thing at all, which is most probable since there are not any such solid orbs that by their swift motion might hear and enkindle the adjoining air, which is imagined to be the reason of that element. Concerning this, see these guys and the noble Tycho with diverse others who have purposefully handled this proposition. So he's saying maybe that the, if it was fire, it's not fire, because if it was fire, it would catch the whole air on fire. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what he's saying, because then the earth would blow up, right? Oof. Okay. Gentlemen and ladies, we have two more paragraphs in Proposition 3. And the third and last bullet point is... I might add a third that there is no music of the spheres. Have you guys heard of this music of the spheres? They mentioned it once before. I believe Kepler was um, into this stuff, music of the spheres. People thought that like the universe, the solar system was like aesthetically perfect and that they, the orbits were like music. They like, orbited to the beat of a song, something like that. Um, anyway, that's what uh, M-U-S-I-C-K-E of the spheres. Spheres is misspelled too. Uh, there is no music of the spheres, for if they be not solid, how can their motion cause any such sound as is conceived? I do the rather meddle with this because Plutarch speaks as if a man might very conveniently, conveniently hear that harmony if he were an inhabitant in the moon. But I guess that he said this out of incogitancy, 
incogitancy, incongitancy, <laughs> and did not well consider those necessary consequences which depended upon his opinion. However, the world would have no great loss in being deprived of this music. <laughs> this guy's not a fan of the music of the spheres. Unless at some times we had the privilege to hear it. Uh, then indeed, Philo the Jew thinks it would save us the charges of diet, and we might live at an easy rate by feeding at that ear only, and receiving no other nourishment. And for this very reason, he, says he, was Moses enabled to tarry forty days and forty nights in the mount without eating anything, because he there heard the melody of the heavens. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, I don't think um, Mr. John Wilkins is a believer of that theory, though. Uh, Risum tenitus. I don't know why. I don't know what that means. If I knew Latin, I would probably know why he wrote that. I know this music hath had great patrons. Patrons? Patrons. I think I say patrons. Both scared and profane authors, such as Ambrose Beattie, Okay, he's listing off people, Plato, Cicero, and others. But because it is not now, I think, affirmed by any, I shall not therefore bestow either pains or time in arguing against it. So nobody believes this anymore. It may suffice that I have only named these three last, and for the two more necessary, have referred the reader to others for satisfaction. I shall in the next place proceed to the nature of the moon's body to know whether that be capable of any such conditions as may make it possible to be inhabited, and what those qualities are wherein it more nearly agrees with our earth. Okay, Proposition 4 is going to be a fun one. 